I see things written about me where it says, she said this because of this. And truthfully, I know no one's going to believe me, but I say things because I think them. I don't say things in order to make you think this about me or that about me. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Fran Lebowitz. Fran found fame as a writer in the 1970s when she started writing movie reviews and magazine columns. She's the author of two essay collections, chronicling her observations of New York and the people around her. After the success of her books, she later became a regular guest on late night talk shows in the 90s and is also famous for her TV and movie roles. This year, she got an Emmy nomination for her second documentary, Pretend It's a City, which she made with her friend Martin Scorsese. Fran, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So before we get into the conversation, we're going to warm up with a lightning round to get to know you a little bit better. Quick questions, quick answers. Okay. Fran. Yes. What is your greatest pet peeve? Oh, that's impossible. No, I feel like you have a lot of opinions. Like today, what is your greatest pet peeve? It's truthfully, it's impossible. I wouldn't even call them pet peeves. I would just call them life. So if you're asking me like, what was the most annoying thing that happened to me today? I wouldn't even know where to begin. I'm sorry, I cannot answer this. Okay, I didn't mean to stump you on the very first one, but here we are. If you were in a movie, who would play you? If the a character based on me was in a movie, who would <laughs> yeah. play me? Mm-hmm. No one, if I could help it. Okay. What's something we can't Google about you? You know what? I don't have a computer. I have no idea what's in Google or on Google. And as far as I can tell, unfortunately, everything. What's the last TV show you watched? Well, last night, like at four in the morning, I was watching CNN and then my TV broke. And that's my pet peeve of the day. Okay. That would get that would annoy me too. Who's someone you would want to sit next to at dinner, living or dead? You know, this question, I, was, I, I don't want to sit next to any dead people at dinner. <laughs> so that right away, I'm telling you right now that you could take all the dead people out. Although the upside of sitting next to a dead person is they wouldn't be interrupting you. But there is a downside, which I don't want to get into. I know. I love to have dinner with Marty. I'd be happy to sit next to Marty. What's the most surprising thing about Marty? I think what other people would find surprising about it is how psychotically well-read he is. You cannot believe how well-read Marty is. I mean, I know numerous people with, you know, PhDs in literature who have these kind of credentials of being, you know, very well-read who are not on the planet of Marty. So I don't know if a lot of people know this, but I certainly love this fun fact that you have been on Law & Order a few times. What is your favorite Law & Order character? Well, I got on Law & Order because I met a Patham Merkerson who played the police captain. So I'd have to say, although that Law and Order, the one I was on, which was the original one, is no longer on. But coming back. Oh, is it? They didn't call me. What's the last book or article you read? I'm trying to think what I read this morning. Well, I didn't read a book this morning, but I read an array of piled up London reviews of books, New York review of books, to see like if there was anything I felt like reading this morning. And I did read some things there that were so negligible that I can't remember what they were, which is why these things pile up. 
I actually have one more question. Who's the funniest person you know? Marty's pretty funny. I know several funny people. The funniness is an important trait of a friend, I think. He's one of the funniest. I'll tell you that most comedians that I know or that I've met are not very funny in conversation. They may be really funny comedians, but they're not really funny in conversation. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so I want to go back to little Fran. <laughs> you as a child, what was your family situation like? In what way? That's a pretty big question. Like, what was your family dynamic? It was like every other family dynamic. Like, I was born in 1950, but at the end of 1950, so I'm younger than you think. I was born in Marstown, New Jersey. My father was an upholsterer. He owned a shop with his brother. It had been his father's shop. And luckily, being a girl, I am not an upholsterer. Because if I had been a boy, I would have been probably compelled into this business. Being a girl, no one cared what I did. So I have a younger sister who's uh, three and a half years younger than I am. And I know this is against the law. I had a pretty happy childhood. I really actually enjoyed being a child. <laughs> and this is not only because I get, had a pretty happy environment, which I did, but also because I really believe that people are suited to certain ages. Some people are really great at being children. I was fantastic because I'm very suited to having no responsibility, you know, no real responsibility. And so I, I had a pretty happy childhood, although probably by the time I was about 10 or 11, I started plotting to get out of there, not out of my family, but out of this small town environment. And what was it about the, the small town? Were you just ready to leave the idea of school and kind of start your life? Or was it just small town life in general? Well, I wasn't ready to leave school when I was 10, no. But it's very hard to explain what life in the 50s really was like to people because everyone now just thinks it had to do with like Cadillacs and stuff, which we did not have, by the way. You know, I lived in a very, very ordinary environment. And by the time I was like 11, I thought, this is not for me. It wasn't interesting enough. It wasn't that it was bad. It was just too small. Everyone knew everything about everyone else. People talked about each other all the time. And that was something I bridled against. Of course, now the entire world is that. So we're basically the internet has all the worst aspects of small town life, but none of the good aspects. So I'm guessing that if you have a Facebook page, you don't run it or an Instagram account. I don't know. There, I know there is a Facebook page, but it's not. No, I don't have a computer. I don't have a Wi-Fi connection to my house. I do not have a cell phone. I do not have whatever else you're supposed to have. I have none of these things. I know there is a Facebook page for me. I know one of them is run by my uh, lecture agency, and there may be other ones, but I'm very happy to have this opportunity, not that you asked me, is that who's ever putting book reviews on Amazon with my name is not me. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. It's very important to me that people think, for you know, because first of all, I have always refused to write book reviews, you know, for actual real places like the New York Times. But it's unbelievable to me that people are allowed to do this. And when you tell the people who own these companies, they go, well, here's what you have to do. And I always think, here's what I have to do? Do I own Twitter? How about here's what you have to do? And so this, I find this very galling, but especially because it's book reviews. It's not me. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. I am actually curious, just as a side note, what was the pandemic like for you being home and not being able to Zoom from your computer? Well, the pandemic was... Uh, yes, I didn't have a computer. I didn't miss it because I've never had one. I didn't have to Zoom because I don't have a job. And that's just one of the other wonderful things about not having a job. Luckily, I have a pretty big apartment. And more importantly, I live alone. The people who don't live alone, I don't understand how they could take it. 
I really, I don't care who the other person was in this apartment with me. It would have been unbearable to me. So let's talk about kind of the early days of you starting out in New York City. You were doing all kinds of odd jobs, selling belts, cleaning apartments, driving a cab. And then you added writing into that too. When did writing become an obvious passion of yours? I always wanted to be a writer. I came to New York to be a writer and also to live in New York. I did those other jobs because I'm not an heiress, okay? Even though I would have made an excellent heiress. So I did those other jobs in order to live. So it doesn't that I came to New York and thought, I'd like to be a belt peddler, or I'm going to come to New York because I want to clean apartments. So I was always writing, even when I was a kid, I mean, even a child. And I had those other jobs and also wrote for magazines because you didn't make any money. You didn't make enough money writing for magazines. But as soon as my first book came out, I didn't do those jobs anymore. You managed to successfully build networks and relationships from scratch that ended up serving you very well throughout your career. And when I say networks, like, I mean, like really good networking with people that became your your close friends, Martin Scorsese, Andy Warhol. Like, how do you first start building relationships with people like that? Okay, the word network didn't even exist then, not in that way, you know, of using it. I wasn't building networks, you know. I'm just a very delightful person. I don't know how else to put it. And by the way, I was not friends with Andy, but Andy owned a magazine. That was my interest in Andy, was that he owned Interview. But of course, being around the factory, like in 1970, you did meet a lot of people because they were always coming into the factory. You know, these worlds, the worlds of like writing and music and these worlds were very small then. The New York art world used to fit in one restaurant And that's the truth. And also people went out all the time and all night long, all the time. So you met so many people that, you know, you shared interest and taste with because you were in the same places all the time. And also these things weren't publicized the way they are now. And I'm not even talking about the internet because this happened way before the internet. I have to say that people who are younger than me, which of course now is almost everyone, they are so organized. Even people who are really young, like people who are in college ask me, how do you think I should build a retirement fund? I don't have one now. So people are very organized. They're very premeditated. You know, they have lists of goals. They have, this was not only not me, this was not anyone I knew. I don't want to give the impression it was lackadaisical, but it was not formalized the way it is now. How did you start carving out your voice? You know, it's just my voice. I know no one young believes this. It's like, this is just my voice. I see things written about me where it says, she said this because of this. And truthfully, I know no one's going to believe me, but I say things because I think them. I don't say things in order to make you think this about me or that about me. Because first of all, I don't know you and I don't care about you. I don't mean I don't like you. I mean, I don't think of it that way. Now, I know that there are many things you can't say now, Many, many. And that changes hourly. So I try not to say those things because I don't want to spend my life fighting with people. I want to go back for a second to your lack of technology. I want to kind of like put into perspective, you know, how you've really mastered the art of not giving into having a phone and the internet. As you said, you don't even have Wi-Fi. We literally, the skim had to collect you from your home and bring you to our studio today because you would not be able to order an Uber (laughs) or Lyft. What I think is fascinating is that when you look at your career, you've been able to resist all forms of advancement in technology, but yet have maintained a very large part of the zeitgeist. 
How did you do that? How have you done that? Because I'm old. In other words, of course you couldn't do that now. There are a lot of old people. First of all, you're not that old. But there are a lot of old people who are not a part of the zeitgeist. Oh, okay. I looked at the question from the opposite way around. In other words, if I was young, I realized I could not possibly do that. But also, I wouldn't have done it. In other words, I don't resist technology. I'm just not interested in it. First of all, when they first invented the kind of computer you'd have in your house, they were called word processors. All right. So a friend of mine who was a screenwriter got one, and she told me, this is fantastic. You have to come to my apartment and look at it. So I looked at it, and I said, this is just a very fast kind of typewriter, which is all it was at the time. I don't need this. I write so slowly, I could write my own blood without hurting myself. But also, I don't know how to type. I do not know how to type. And when I say this, people go, oh, you can just do that. No, I can't. All right. And not knowing how to type was a deliberate thing on my part. I did not take typing class in high school because if you knew how to type and you were a girl, that was your job, if you had a job. And many girls didn't, by the way. I don't know how to type, and so I didn't get it. And of course, I didn't know the whole world was going to go into this machine. If I knew that, I'd be rich. I didn't know that. All right? But it's not that I hate technology. It's that I have a tremendous antipathy to machines of all sorts. I didn't have the old machines. I have the same car. I've owned the same car since 1979. Like maybe two years ago, I learned how to open the hood, okay? <laughs> I'm the kind of person when a machine breaks, I hit it. Or I become like desperate, oh no, what could po who could possibly fix a machine? Not me. So it isn't that I hate this stuff. I'm just not interested in it. I also hit the machine, even though I, I do use a computer every day, but when it breaks or the printer breaks, I, I just have to walk away. What's interesting, I think, is that the mediums that you've told stories on have evolve. So when you were thinking through this last documentary, even though you personally aren't necessarily like using any sorts of technology in your day to day, does it change how you think about the stories that you're telling? No, because I didn't make this. Marty did. That's what people don't understand. In other words, you know, Marty made another documentary about me that was a movie about 10 or 11 years ago. And when that came out, people said, what was it like to collaborate with Martin Scorsese? I didn't collaborate with him. He's a filmmaker. I'm not. When we did this Netflix series, Marty had never done a series before. And so Marty said to me, I don't know how to do this. I've never done this before. So, you know, this didn't bother me because I wasn't the one who had to do this. And he did an excellent job because he's a great filmmaker. So I said, I don't know, Marty. It's a movie. Just chop it up into pieces. So I have a very tactical question. How did you watch this if it was on Netflix? I did not. You have not seen it? I've seen it in Marty's screening room. Okay. You know, about a billion times while he was editing it. And then I saw what I believe to be the final edit, but I've never seen it on Netflix. Uh, I've never seen Netflix. I think that's the way to go. I'd rather watch things in a private screening room than on Netflix in my TV. <laughs> I think you've got a good system. Right. Well, it's not my screening room. I know Netflix is very popular, though. I've heard about it. Yeah, they have a bright future, I think. <laughs> Let's talk about writer's block. That's not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you famously hit writer's block and you started to pivot your career towards that persona. How'd you have to think about finding new sources of income when you came up against this? What you said makes it sound like I thought about it. Yeah. Okay. What you said makes it sound like it was a plan. As I was not getting any writing done. For instance, I used to give a lot of readings. 
And at a certain point, I complained to someone in charge of the reading that I don't want to read this stuff anymore. It's too old, you know. And people were paying to come see me do this. And she was someone who ran these kind of events. So I said, why don't we do this? Why didn't someone just interview me? And then I can answer questions and answer questions from the audience. She said, what do you mean? You mean like, you know, on TV or on the radio? I said, yeah. She said, you can't do that. I said, why not? So not that I'm very proud of it, but I invented the onstage interview. And it was simply to make up for the fact that I didn't want to read the old stuff. And then people agreed to pay for this. And that's how it happened. When was the last time you sat down to try to write? Actually, yesterday. Did you write? I did. I, I wouldn't say it's a book. Okay. I would say it's a couple of paragraphs. Okay. When you finished, how did you feel? I felt like, all right, you've written enough. <laughs> Let's not get carried away here. Do you think that your writing style has changed from when you last wrote a book? I haven't written enough to tell you that. You know, I would say that possibly, possibly not. I mean, I have to tell you that the way that I wrote, I'm not talking about the most intrinsic part of my writing style, has been ripped off by so many people that now, like if I do it, people are going to say, oh, it's just like this thing. And I'll say, yeah, but that person took this from me 30 years ago. So let me assure you that when my first book came out, the publisher, to a minute advance, said, you can't publish a book like this now. No one has published a book like this since the 1920s. And no one wants to read a book like this. It turns out, luckily for me, people did want to read a book like this. And then it turns out many other people wanted to write books like this and also television shows like this. And so I can't answer the exact question you asked, really. I don't know. Do you consider yourself an introvert? No, not at all. I know, I know, like actors always say, I'm really very shy. I don't. I'm not an introvert at all. I'm very sociable. But I am kind of like two people in this way. In other words, I am extremely sociable kind of a lounge lizard, but I'm also very solitary. In other words, like when I'm in my apartment, I do not want other people living there. And I never have. I've never lived with another person. And that is an astonishing accomplishment for a lesbian, let me tell you. So I've managed to live by myself my entire life because I loathe domestic life and I don't want to hear other people walking around. And I want to know, when are you leaving? Okay. Danielle and I are both like looking at you and smiling because we're both jealous. <laughs> we're both like, I want alone time. <laughs> I don't mind people coming over, but I also insist they leave. The reason I, I ask, are you an introvert or an extrovert, is when you kind of famously hit writer's block, you embraced this persona, at least publicly it appeared that you embraced this persona of Fran Leibowitz. And there is a shift one way or not, whether it was strategic or not, where you're putting yourself out there in a very different way. Do you like that attention? You know, the amount of attention, I, mean, I suppose someone your age can't understand this. My books got a lot of attention, okay? As soon as my first book came out, I did television shows to promote books like people do now. I did radio shows. I went on book tours. I spoke in public. So I know you think it's a persona. I think it's me. Now, since the Netflix series, there is no comparison to the amount of attention, by which I mean the number of people who recognize me. Okay, and that's bigger by far than anything that ever happened to me in regard to how many people like stop me and talk to me. And that is because Netflix is so gigantic, not because I changed. 
I really didn't even know Netflix. I, the only reason I knew Netflix was all over the world was because one of the million times the series was postponed was because they have to translate it into one million languages because they're in one million countries. And so the day it came out or the night it came out or whatever, my phone, I have an actual phone. I was going to say, like a real phone. Yeah. What you would call landline and I would call phone, which works unlike cell phones. And the first call I got was from Dubai. Okay, this was not from someone from Dubai. This was from a friend of mine who's a journalist who was in Dubai. The second call I got was from Saigon, also from a friend of mine who lives in Saigon. The third call I got was from Geneva. The fourth was from LA. And I thought, this thing is huge. Your career has taken different shapes and forms over decades. And so much of it has been about maintaining cultural relevancy. Is there... Any fear you have of not being kind of on top of that zeitgeist? I know you're not going to believe me. I never give that a single thought. I never thought, am I maintaining my cultural relevancy? I never thought about it. You know, and I don't think about it now. I'm only thinking about it now because I'm answering your question. This is not a fear of mine because I never thought about it. The people who really try to do that, the people who care about that, I think mostly, are just trying to sell people stuff. If you're trying to think like, what does a 22-year-old think? It's because you're thinking, can I sell them this? Okay, so I'm not trying to sell them this. And I think the reason for it is twofold. One is, and this is bad news I have for you, people do not change. The human species, a horrible species, does not improve. Okay, so people, despite the world changes, every single thing changes, everything dates, all you know, every detail dates, human beings and human nature the same. It's always the same. And the other thing is, I really think has to do with New York in the 70s has achieved what seems to me like this permanent glamour, like Paris in the 20s. And I was aware of this way before Netflix, because always kids, by which I mean people in their 20s, or sometimes even younger, not that I can tell the difference, would come up to me in the street and say, oh, I wish I lived in New York in the 70s. It seems so fun. And when this first started happening, which was like 20 years ago, probably, I thought, this is bizarre. Because I know that when I was young, I didn't go up to old people in the street saying, oh, I wish I lived in New York in the 30s, because I didn't. And so I started thinking about this a long time ago. And I started thinking, like, why is this, you know, that the 70s has achieved this place in people's consciousness? And so I really tried to think, was New York really more fun in the 70s? Or was it just more fun because I was in my 20s? It is definitely more fun to be in your 20s. That is for sure. And so I always tell these kids, you know, if you're not having fun now, you will never have fun. I have no idea whether it's more fun to be in your 20s and 70s or now because I'm not in my 20s now. Okay? I really think that that has a lot to do with it. So I do have a a question actually from a a 25-year-old fan of yours who was obsessed with the Netflix show during the pandemic. Their question is, what advice do you have for living, for younger people living in New York now that it's so expensive? You know, it was always the most expensive place to live in the country. Okay. So if I tell people this was how much my first apartment cost, and it's like what dinner costs now. Okay. They go, oh, but truthfully, that was a lot for the time. So it definitely was cheaper, not just relatively, it certainly was cheaper than it became. You know, there's no question. And that was not my fault, okay? But that is certain people's fault. 
That is fault of real estate developers. That's fault of the people who decided the only way to save New York in the 70s when it was going bankrupt, which I only knew it was going bankrupt because it was constantly saying in the paper it was going bankrupt. If you're poor, the city going bankrupt is meaningless to you. Didn't matter to me if the city going bankrupt. I'm already bankrupt. I still think that kids should come to New York. Okay, not only could I not really afford to live in New York when I was young, I can't afford it now because here's the truth. No one can afford to live in New York. It's unaffordable. But people figure it out. And the one of the, I wouldn't say good things about COVID because I don't think there were good things about COVID, but one of the things that occurred because of COVID was, although I know this is already changing, rents went down quite a bit. And some people I know who are in their 20s moved to New York. Even though, and I talked to a lot of them and I said, it won't stay like this. Get the longest lease you can. Because I was not one of those people who said five minutes into COVID, New York is over. You know, that seemed to me absurd. So it's worth it. It's also important for the city that people come to New York who are not bankers. Okay. If all the bankers decided to move to Miami, good. Bye. <laughs> no one is missing you. Okay. I think it's important to come to cities. Cities are always more expensive than rural places because they're better to live in. Unless you're a farmer. I'm not saying farmers come to live in New York, but I mean, it's more fun to live in a city. It's more interesting to live in a city. There's no comparison. Humans should live in cities. Horses should live in the countryside. Okay, we're going to go to a listener question from Sarah. I read that you wear basically a uniform every day. Are there other parts of your life that you've tried to streamline and how has that helped you? It is not, and it never has been me, who say that I wear a uniform. It is other people who cannot tell. First of all, I'm always reading and hearing, you only wear black uh, blazers. First of all, I have no blazers. Second of all, I never wear black, ever. So although people think I have like one jacket and one shirt, I have numerous jackets and numerous shirts. To me, they look different, okay, because they actually are different. So this wasn't really a decision to wear a uniform because I don't wear a uniform. But that's because I have very deliberate taste in clothing. And I'm very interested in clothing. I mean, I guess that makes my life easier, although it not characterized my life as it had been one of unending ease. It seems to me that people should outgrow worrying about what other people are wearing. But it seems to me that people don't necessarily do that. And that would be good advice. It's like, wear what you want to wear. I, what I say is, wear the best clothes you can afford. If you're really worried that other people aren't wearing it, then you're in junior high school. <laughs> well, Fran, that is a great way to stop. Thank you. You are highly entertaining and we love listening to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. 